Let's take our Bibles, turn to Psalm chapter 25. You know, the Psalms are probably um, the most interesting and kind of intriguing book in the Bible. I know we're studying Revelation, and that seems hard to believe, but from the standpoint of real-life emotion, from the standpoint of what we feel and how we live and what we experience, when you look at the Psalms, they, they get right down to it. They express what we feel at different times of the day and the week and the year and the experiences that we go through and the emotions that we feel. And most of these songs, because they were originally like what the choir just did, they were songs. Most of them were written by David. And we know David was a person who consistently and faithfully walked with the Lord, who had a, a great heart for the Lord. There was, there was little question about David's character, even though he had a couple times where he wandered from the Lord that were very public. But for the most part, David was a man who had a great heart for the Lord. And yet, when we read the songs that he writes, and we see these kind of poetic um, writings that are here in the book of Psalms, most of them written by him, some written by Asaph, some we don't know. But what strikes me as I look at the book of Psalms is it's full of questions. And there are a lot of things that David is asking of the Lord that, that are very pointed and very real and very uh, kind of sharp. Lord, what are you doing and why are you doing it? And why are you leading the way that you are? And it's interesting and, and maybe reassuring to us that he does that. And sometimes I think it's even a little disconcerting just how realistic it is. Because sometimes it's very raw and very unbridled. And you kind of go, ooh, that feels a little awkward that he's, that he's being that honest. And, and though it's not always correct, and, and David maybe is not always justified in asking what he does because he just doesn't understand yet, he's not hesitant to show his anger and his frustration and, and low hope and confusion about the Lord's ways. A couple examples of this. Psalm 18. David says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? In Psalm 22, he says, My God, why have you forsaken me? I cry by day, but you don't answer. Now, those are pretty gutsy statements. Those are pretty bold declarations to make toward God. And just because David's forthright in his feelings, it doesn't mean, does it, that we always have a chance to kind of vent on the Lord and say, well, I'm, I'm ticked off and to kind of explode whatever we don't understand or we're a little frustrated because we don't know what the Lord's doing. But I do believe very fervently that the Holy Spirit allowed these expressions. He allowed David and others to write these words that, that are very honest and unbridled, and kind of say, what are you doing, Lord? I believe the Lord allows that to encourage us. In the sense that we know that the things that are in our heads are not weird, right? We don't want to be weird. We want to feel like this is normal, to, to be frustrated and to, to wonder what the Lord's doing. That's not unusual. Other people feel that too. And, and if David, who was anointed and blessed by the Lord, and whose hand, the hand of the Lord was, was on his life, if he felt frustrated and he didn't know what was going on and he was confused and, and, and often a little bit irritated, then that makes me feel better, right? Now, now I feel a little less 
uh, a little less confused and a little less uh, worried that I'm not allowed to feel those feelings. This is what is, is so important to understand about that, though. There are two hindrances that we have to our understanding and to our sensitivity to the Lord's leading and the Lord's conviction. While it's good to feel that emotion, while it's good to know that somebody else felt that emotion, especially somebody that was so close to the Lord, we have to understand that that highlights two problems. It highlights two hindrances to our understanding. The one is that we're limited by our humanity. Sin limits us, our humanity limits us, our lack of complete surrender limits us. So while the emotions are very visceral and we may feel very justified in feeling them, not only can we not see the full picture of what's going to happen in the future, but we don't know what is beneficial to our maturity. And we don't know what's beneficial to give God the most glory. And that perspective becomes more jaded because sin distorts our thinking. This is why sin, for for any number of reasons, has to be removed from our lives because sin distorts our thinking, right? It it causes us to be skewed in what we understand and it causes us to become very selfish. So there's a hindrance that our perspective is limited. The second hindrance is that even as believers with a new nature and as believers with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we still tend towards self-sufficiency especially when we're confused, especially when we're uncertain. Uh, one, of our, one of our innate human uh, inclinations is to try to figure it out and try to control the circumstance. And that's a great dichotomy as a believer because this tendency towards self-sufficiency is a logical contradiction to our desire to know and live by the will of the Lord. How many times do we say, well, I wish I just knew what the Lord's will was or I wish the Lord would reveal what he's going to do And yet, when we get into the crisis that's going to teach us the will of God and teach us dependence, we say, no, I can't have that. That's a little frustrating. I think I'll grab control. And that's a contradiction to what the Lord's trying to do. So it's so important that we understand that times when we feel insufficient and times when we feel confused and times that we don't understand are the times where we need to surrender and be sensitive to the work of the Holy Spirit so we can understand what He's doing in our lives. God always has a plan. God always wants to do a work in our lives. And as a church, the principle is the exact same. God always has a plan for this church. God always wants to do a fresh work in this church. The only way we can understand that and follow that is to be sensitive to what the Spirit's telling us. So on one end, we have to make sure we don't presume that we know what is best. And on the other hand, we can't be so reticent and and so resistant that we miss what God wants to do. The only way to understand is to seek Him and be surrendered. The only way to know, Lord, this is what you want, is to say, Lord, what do you want? How do you want us to follow? And when you show us, that's what we'll do. Now, that being said, it's going to be a little bit of a long introduction, and then I'll shorten the last part, okay? That's our deal this morning. There are many barriers to our understanding, and there are many barriers to acting on it. And the two that will be most damaging will be lack of faith and acting in self-sufficiency. 
as God leads, as God reveals things in our lives, as God shows us things that he wants us to do as a church, the biggest barriers to that will be not trusting him and knowing that he has it and not yielding to him because we want to do it on our own. Now, we've studied faith many times. We're not going to concentrate on that this morning. Uh, I, I want to focus on the second one. I want to focus on the problem of self-sufficiency and the calling the Lord gives us here in Psalm chapter 25. The, the, the song the choir just sang this morning is one of my absolute favorites. And it has been there for me so many times when I've gone through difficulty and trial and crisis and confusion. And I've had to remember those words. Every time I sing that song, I remember very clearly times where I had to remember those words in my life. And it took a lot of those experiences, because I'm a little bit stubborn. I know that's hard to believe, but it's true. I'm a little bit stubborn. I'm a little bit slow to get it. So it took a lot of those experiences until my heart and mind could really settle into the fact that my life is in his hands and there's no greater place to be. There is no greater place to be than in the hand of God. And how many of us know that self-will and self-sufficiency fights that every step of the way? And that creates a problem. Much of the reason why we're not more perceptive about God's conviction and God's leading is our hearts aren't pliable. We're set in our ways. We like it the way we like it. We're stubborn about having to stretch, and we're stubborn about how much we're willing to do and become. And that hinders us greatly because it strikes back to the origin of sin. The origin of sin is resistance to God. The enemy said, you don't need him. Resist what he's telling you to do. Don't do that. Do your own thing. It all comes back to the book of Genesis. And the servant of the Lord will never be effective in walking with the Lord and trusting the Lord and sharing his gospel and yielding to his leading and being used in powerful ways if we're stubborn and proud and resistant. God's not going to use us if that's true. So that means the primary part of intentionality in our walk is to develop the habit of surrender. Let me say that again. The primary part of intentionality in our walk is to develop the habit of surrender. Learning to choose God's way and God's path and God's leading rather than our own. Now, that's not easy. That's not easy. But it's something we don't have to do on our own. God doesn't just say, man up, figure it out, dig down, do your best, try hard, just, just, just give it everything you got. Really buckle down now. Come on, you can do this. You can be surrendered. He says, no, you can't. You're too stubborn. You're too proud. You're too full of sin. So he says, I'm going to help you. Here's the amazing truth this morning. The Lord is more than willing to bless us and lead us. But for that to happen, our lives have to be his and only his. We have to ask ourselves this morning, am I willing to completely surrender myself into his hands. God will not do his work in us if we only give him part of ourselves. If we hold on to what we feel secure about or what we don't want to be stretched out or what we don't want to give up, he deserves everything 
He demands everything, and he's not impressed or convinced by any of the reasons that we get him not to do that. And yet, he knows that we're weak, and he knows that we're hesitant. So he says, I will assist you in producing this work in you. Philippians 2.13 says, It is God who is at work in us, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. In other words, the Lord doesn't expect that we will be able to achieve perfect surrender. And he doesn't think that we will have the power to institute that kind of change in our lives. So he says, if you will yield yourself to me, I'll do it. You're not going to be able to produce it, Rhodes. Come on, you're too weak. You're too hesitant. You're too stubborn. You're too proud. You're too full of sin. And you can gut it out and say, well, I want to be surrendered. But you can't be. So you have to yield yourself before me and say, my life, Lord, is yours. And God says, then I'll do the work. Then I'll make it happen. Andrew Murray talks about this in his book, Absolute Surrender. If you've never read Andrew Murray, how many have read Andrew Murray? Somebody show show of hands. Okay, like 12 of you. That's not enough. If you've never read Andrew Murray, go get one of his paperbacks this week. It'll cost you six or seven bucks and it'll change your view of the Lord. It's deep stuff. Andrew Murray 116 years ago wrote what I'm about to quote to you and it is still as fresh and as relevant as it was 116 years ago. There's so many good things in the book Absolute Surrender but there's one line in the book that really grabs my attention every time I read it. Murray writes, God himself will work surrender in you. So say, my God, I am willing that you should make me willing. That's one of the great secrets to the Christian walk. That we would not only be willing to have our pride and our self-sufficiency put to death every day. That we'd say, well, that would be a good thing. I I think that would be great in my life, Paul, if, if I could... If, if my pride could be put to death and I could stop being so self-sufficient, that would be wonderful. Well, that's only the first part. We have to then ask the Lord to do that. Because intention's wonderful, right? But intention never changed a thing. At that point, we have to say, Lord, I am asking you to do this. And that's an essential part of the humbling process that we have to desire Because if we don't ask for it, our self is going to keep fighting against it. So prayer is at the heart of this. Prayer gives our heart and mind the right perspective. And by its very nature, it humbles us. Because as we come into the greatness and authority and the power of the Lord, we are broken. Prayer gives us deep clarity about the Lord and about ourselves. And we need to continue to make it a huge priority as a body Because a church that does not value prayer will be a church that is perpetually weak. A church that doesn't value prayer will quickly lose its focus. It will become a church that doesn't live by conviction. And it will be a church that misses the leading of the Lord. So I want to encourage you now. It's two weeks away. Plan now to be at prayer meeting on the 24th. Plan now to be there that night. Because there's a lot to pray about. And it's the start of Holy Week. And we're going to invite people to church on Holy Week. We're going to say, come with me on Good Friday and come with me on Resurrection Sunday. I want you to hear about what God has done in your life. So we need to prepare our hearts for that. The 24th.
We need to know that the Lord is really about to do a great work in our midst. Now, let's hear David's word of encouragement. I said it was a long introduction. That's half the sermon. Look at chapter 25, verse 3. Now, let's just start at verse 1. It's all good, right? To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Do not let me be ashamed. Do not let my enemies exalt over me. Indeed, none of those who wait for you will be ashamed. Those who deal treacherously without cause will be ashamed. Make me know your paths, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation, and for you I wait all the day. Go down to verse 12. Who is the man who fears the Lord? He will instruct him in the way he should choose. His soul will abide in prosperity, and his descendants will inherit the land. The secret of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he will make them know his covenant. Now, notice that David establishes some foundational spiritual principles here which come out of observing God's past actions and come out of the experiences that he had had. His overarching conclusion in the verses that we just read is that God's reputation is flawless. God's reputation is flawless. There is never an instance in all of recorded history going back to eternity and going forward to eternity, there is never an instance where God is inconsistent with his integrity and his character and where he is not completely faithful to his people. There's not one time. God's reputation is flawless. So David draws some definitive deductions based on what he sees. Just walk through each verse, 3, 4, and 5. In verse 3, he says there's never any dishonor or shame to someone who trusts in God. There is never any dishonor or shame to someone who trusts in God. Notice the word in verse 3, that word wait. It has the strong implication that something is out of our plans and out of our control, and that we're going to have to trust the Lord during that time. And if it's trials or difficulty, not only may there be a cost for us personally, but we may even be criticized, we may be ridiculed, we may even suffer for our faith. David knew that because he spoke from experience. Think about the instances in David's life where he didn't get support. He goes down to take food to his brothers. And there's this huge giant standing there blaspheming God. And he says to his brothers, what are we going to do about this? And they're like, you shut up, you little kid. Get out of here. What are you doing here? Who do you think you are? David says, well, nobody's going to talk about my God that way. Let me go take care of that. You guys sit here on your lounge chairs. I'll go take care of it. I'll go defend the Lord. But his own family didn't support him. And then, as he gets anointed to be king, Saul puts a hit on his life, and David has to run like a deer through the wilderness and hide in caves and and bury himself away so that the king of Israel, who was supposed to have the anointing of God, but had, had abandoned that, he's pursuing him and trying to kill him. And then his own son, Absalom, rebels and and stages a coup d'etat. And and David has to flee Jerusalem. Think of all the times where David was criticized and ridiculed and went through hardship and trial and experienced all that pain. But he comes back in Psalm 25.3 and he says with honesty, I've never been ashamed of trusting the Lord and God has never failed me. Come on, somebody say amen to that. 
I've never been ashamed. It's always been good to trust him because he's so faithful and he loves me and he takes care of me even in my times of greatest pain. Listen, that remembrance, Psalm 25, 3, will give you quiet and confidence in your soul this week. And then he says, second in verse 4, God can and will offer clear direction and leading in my life, especially when I ask. The implication of asking for his paths is that there are other choices. There are other things that appeal for our attention and for our loyalty in life. And often it's hard for us to discern what is right because the other choices may seem so logical and so practical and maybe even desirable to us. And they're so attractive to us that, that we want to disbelieve that there can be a path of joy and contentment if we will just persevere and walk in holiness. And the devil plays with our mind and he says, no, you can't trust God. You're not experiencing joy and contentment right here. And, and you're not going to experience joy and contentment. You know why? Because you're trusting in him. And that's a bad move. And we have to say, you be quiet. God is always faithful. God is always true. And God will always lead me when I follow him. Listen, Matthew 7 says, the way is narrow and tight. But David says here, if I seek the right path, you'll show me. And he says, go down to verse 12. He says, when we fear the Lord, he'll instruct us in the way that he chooses. And he says in verse 14, he'll reveal his secret to us and the joy of his covenant. God will always direct you and lead you when you ask. He will never say, nah, I don't feel like it. You asked me? Nah. Right, let's, let's play a game with you. Let's. Let's string you out a little bit and see how much you'll do. God doesn't toy with us. He's loving and gracious. He's our Savior. He went to the cross for us. He fills us with His Spirit. He's not going to be mean. He's going to say, you ask, I'll answer. You draw near, I'll draw near to you. I want to bless you beyond your imagination. And that's the third thought here in verse 5. The Lord leads us in truth always pointing us back to his mercy and deliverance. It is stunning, church, how quickly we forget that and how much we take it for granted. Oh, I wish that was less true in my life. How often we take it for granted what God has done so he keeps reminding us, look at what I have done in your life. Don't move to the next thought emotionally yet. Stay right there. What has God done in you? What has God done for you? What has God done through you? How has he blessed you? How has he protected you? How has he provided for you? Never failing, never forsaking, never doing anything unfair, never doing anything unjustified. Anything that will cause you to say, I can't trust him. I have to deny him. The purpose of all this, verse 5, is to teach us his truth and his ways and our undeniable need to put every bit of our trust and confidence in him. Now, how do we respond to that? Do we say, well, I don't care. Or, or I'm going to ignore that. 
or, or I, I don't want that. Or do we look at it and say, what a wonderful gift that God has given to us. What a tremendous work that God has begun in our life. And it says that he will be faithful to complete it. Now, let's turn over a couple pages. Go over to Proverbs 28. And let's kind of finish the thought. This is the verse that, that I really want you to get this morning. Proverbs 28, 14. This is in the middle of a passage where Solomon is drawing contrast between the righteous and the wicked. And how the wicked's behavior betrays their convictions. And I want you to see what he writes here in verse 14. This is a great verse to memorize this week. Look at what it says. How blessed is the man who fears always. Speaking of fearing the Lord. How blessed is the man who fears the Lord always. But he who hardens his heart will fall into calamity. The New Living Translation is a paraphrase, but I love the way it puts it. It's very real. Blessed are those who have a tender conscience, but the stubborn are headed for serious trouble. Isn't that great? Two competing thoughts. Fearing the Lord always, that's one side. The other side is hardened hearts. There's little middle ground. We fear the Lord always, or we have a hardened heart. And I'm particularly stuck by the contrast of the words because fear here literally means trembling, reverence, and awe. So if the one side is to be in trembling, reverent awe of God, it would seem to me that the opposite of that would be complacency. If I'm not in trembling, reverent awe, I don't really care. It doesn't affect me. I don't believe that God is who he says he was. I, I, I don't, it doesn't matter. But that's not what Solomon says here. He says the opposite of fear and trembling awe is not complacency. Look at it. The opposite of fear, trembling, and awe is hardness of heart. The one who lives in awe and reverence of the Lord, who's overwhelmed by their personal inadequacy before Almighty God, who, who literally trembles in the presence of God, that person, it says in the verse, is blessed by God and fulfilled beyond measure. But look at the person who is hardened and difficult and stubborn about surrendering themselves. The word used here, I love this, has the implication in the Hebrew of making it difficult for God to work. The person who does not live in awe of God, the person who does not surrender themselves to God, makes it difficult for God to work because they hold an attitude of rebellion and self-sufficiency. And the end result of that, look at the verse, verse 14, is that they fall into distress and misery. I think about that concept just for a minute because it's very powerful and very deeply convicting. What Solomon is saying, what the Spirit is saying through Solomon, is that just by our attitude, just by clutching pride like a prized possession, just by declaring our self-sufficiency and being obstinate before the Lord, that we make it difficult for the Lord to do the work that he wants to do. Now, I don't know where you fall in the theological spectrum. Obviously, we know God is sovereign. Obviously, we know God is all-powerful. But his word, he wrote this, is telling us that the state of our heart can impede 
what he desires. The state of our heart can impede what God wants us to do, wants to do in us. Now, I don't know about you, but the truth of that hit me very hard this week, and it sobered me. Especially when I thought about all the times that God has made it easy for me. Think about all the times that the Lord has made it easy for us. You would think we would want to reciprocate to the fullest extent, and yet the Spirit says to Solomon, when you harden your heart, and this is, this is a precursor to what's going to happen to Solomon. He says, when you harden your heart and you're independent and stubborn and self-reliant, you're making it difficult for me. There's so many different ways that can happen. But, but let's talk very simply this morning. What could I do, what could you do, that would make it easier for the Lord? Now you say, well, come on, Paul, he's God. He can do whatever he wants. I know that. I get that. But the text is telling us that God says, there are some things that you do that make it hard for me. So what could we do to make it easier for the Lord? Maybe write these down. Maybe just really pull these into your heart. If we loved to trust, if we just couldn't get enough of trusting the Lord instead of leaning on fear and being anxious, how much more could the Lord do? If we chose selflessness and self-denial instead of selfishness, how much more could he do in our marriages and in our families and in our churches and in our ministry to others if we would just be selfless? If, if we were to put on holiness and put off sin instead of capitulating to temptation and our lusts and our desires and all the things that we want and materialism and I've got to have, I've got to have, I've got to have, I've got to have. If we, if we put that off and put on holiness, how much more would the Lord bless our lives? How much stronger would our witness be? If we desired spiritual contentment, Instead of constantly being discontented and constantly wanting more and looking at our material circumstances, how much more would the Lord bring fresh blessing every day? If we yielded to his leading, instead of saying, well, I have some problems with how you're leading me, Lord. I have some objections. We need to have a little conversation because I am not on board right now with how you're taking my life. If we, if we just yielded and trusted him, how much more would he make his will abundantly clear to us? And if we purposefully surrendered our rights and control instead of demanding our way, how much more would the Lord work in our midst? Listen, that's the message of Proverbs twenty-eight fourteen. And the Spirit makes a very logical argument. Let's bring this to a close. The Spirit makes a very logical argument. He says, if you give all, I will bless you abundantly. But if you are only willing to give part, not only your will, not, excuse me, not only will you never be fulfilled, 
But he says right here, this is his words, not mine. Look at the end of verse 14. He says, if you'll only give part, you're going to get into trouble. It is a spiritual fact that the Lord will never give us more for less. To those who make his life difficult, he will make their lives difficult. He will only give abundantly to uh, to those who offer themselves abundantly. Romans 12.2 calls it a living sacrifice. God says, you want to give me part? You want to hold back? You want to not surrender? You want to keep it? You want to be stubborn? You want to do what you want to do? You want to have control? Fine. Uh, You're going to have some blessing, but you're going to have times where you really fall into difficulty. But if you will give me everything, I'll bless you beyond anything you can comprehend. I will take your life in a direction that you cannot fathom. How do we know that? Listen to how Scripture backs it up. Isaiah 55, 7. Write these verses down. You can look at them later. Isaiah 55, 7. When the wicked forsakes his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and returns to the Lord, the Lord will have compassion on him and he will abundantly pardon him. Titus 3 promises that not by works of righteousness, which we've done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration, the renewing of the Holy Spirit, which he has shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Psalm 36 says that those who put their trust in him will be abundantly satisfied with the fatness of his house and he will make them drink of the river of his pleasures. Ephesians 3.20 says he is able to do far more abundantly be of all that we can ask or think according to the power that works in us. With promises like that, how could we give him anything less than everything? God constantly says, I want to do abundantly in your life. He's not stingy. He's not saying, well, I'll give you a little bit. You know, I am God and you're not, so I'll help you. But He says, the storehouse of heaven is waiting to be poured out. I've got things stored up for you you don't even know about. And when you yield yourself to me, I will pour them out abundantly on your life. Here's the bottom line. When we surrender everything to him, the Lord can do everything in our lives. Everything he plans for us, all the blessing he has for us, all the work he wants to do in and through us. And isn't that the ultimate goal of a believer? Isn't the ultimate goal for God to do everything he wants to do in our lives so that we would see his greatness and his work and we would make it easy for him? Listen to what Murray says. Oh, that God may teach us this. Oh, that God would by his grace show you what a God you have and to what a God you've entrusted yourself, an omnipotent God willing with his whole omnipotence, to place himself, listen to this, it's so wonderful, at the disposal of every child of his. And then he says, God alone can strengthen us with might by his spirit in the inner man and to every waiting heart that will make the sacrifice and give up everything and give time to cry and pray to God. The answer will come. The blessing's not far off. Our God delights to help in us. How many know that's true this morning? The Lord delights to help us. He delights to bless us. And knowing that, 
moves us beyond the simple statement of, my life is in His hands, to the confident and purposeful declaration of surrender. Lord, my life is in Your hands. I give it to You. It's Yours. And to that, the Lord says, now I am going to work in ways you can't imagine. Now I'm going to bless you beyond belief. Don't you want that in your life? Don't you want that in our church? Let's close our eyes. Take just a minute with the Lord right now. I don't know what he said to you this morning. I don't know how he's convicted you or encouraged you. But I do know this is a message every single one of us needs to hear. So the question is, what's holding you back today? What is, what is hindering you from completely surrendering yourself to the Lord? You may say, Lord, uh, Paul, I've been, I've been saved 20, 30 years. That's fine. I have too. But what's holding you back from really surrendering yourself to Him? Maybe this morning you're here and you don't even know the Lord. Maybe you, you just found us this morning and you came in and you listened to what the Lord said this morning. But all your life you've been resistant and you've done your own thing and you're weary of it. This morning you can surrender your heart to Jesus Christ who went to the cross for you and took your sins upon Himself. But he didn't stay in the grave. He conquered sin and conquered death forever through his resurrection. And he says, if you put your trust in me, I will change you. I will cleanse you. I will remove the power and penalty of sin from your life. And I will make you a new creation. If that's you this morning, if that's where you are, I want to encourage you so strongly right now in your heart. Cry out to the Lord and say, Lord, save me. I... I, I want to turn from my sin. I can't do it anymore. You're gracious and you're loving. I would love to talk to you after the service. We've got other people that would love to encourage you and pray for you. Please don't leave today without doing that. And for those of us that do know the Lord and love the Lord, what's holding us back? Pride, sin, Control, fear, nothing's good enough. The Lord wants to abundantly work and abundantly bless. But we'll never experience that unless we yield our hearts to Him. I want to encourage you this morning as your pastor and your friend, if that is where you are, that right now you just give your heart again to the Lord and say, Lord, cleanse me of whatever is hindering me. Teach me what it means to surrender to you. Maybe the Lord's taking you through a trial right now to teach you that very thing and you're resisting it. Lay your life down before Him. Lord, we thank you for this work that you are doing in our midst. We seek your leading and your direction and your plans and your blessings. 
And Lord, that is going to take us being surrendered and yielded to you in a fresh way. So Lord, I ask you to do this work in our midst and to guide and direct our paths. We thank you that you're so faithful. We thank you for all the times. There are too many for us to even begin to count the times when you've helped us and provided and protected and done things maybe that we didn't even know about where you've worked. Continue to work, Father, in our lives and in our midst. And we will give you the praise and the glory. Our lives are in your hands this morning, Lord. Lead us, we pray. In Jesus' name.